open up, whether you have a copy of the Bible or on your phone, um, Hebrews 11. We'll be looking primarily at that. And uh, if you weren't here at the very beginning of the service, I mentioned this, I'll say it again, is next Sunday begins four Sundays in a row of Advent, which is my favorite season of the church calendar. I won't mention why this week. Come back the next couple of weeks and we'll really jump into Advent. Um, But because the next four Sundays, and the fourth Sunday is Christmas Eve this year, and then Christmas is the next day, most of our church will likely be out of the city at that point. Um, We're going to really just focus on Advent for the next three Sundays, next four Sundays. And so what I wanted to do today with this kind of standalone Sunday before we enter into Advent is even though it's it's, it's speeding it up and it's ahead of time, is this is going to be as close as you get from me, something like a New Year's resolution sermon. Um, Quick quiz. Anybody who's a member at our church, does anybody remember what I commended to you one year ago as a New Year's resolution? Anybody remember? Andy? I need to look back at my notes. Oh, he needs to look at his notes. Yeah, yeah. About a year ago, I commended that you consider praying the Psalms daily as a New Year's resolution. This year, what I want to give aspirational, and I want to be legalistic, if you're like, ah, this is, I'm not into New Year's resolutions, that's totally fine. But insofar as I think there's always wisdom to kind of be reflective on the past year, to kind of try to go intentionally into the coming year and not just be reactive and, and kind of passive, I think there is something good about being aspirational. And, and as simple as this is in some ways, the, the main thing I want to commend to us as a community and as a church is that we would aspire to walk by faith in 2020. 24. This is, I think, by far the most important passage in all of Scripture on faith, which is such a central concept, such an important concept, but also a confusing concept, often a vague concept, a, 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 a concept that there's a lot of error out there, both in the church and in the West, but also in the wider culture on this. And so I want to just spend a few minutes in, in Hebrews 11 looking at what exactly is this thing so central to our faith that, that we call faith. And, uh, and to do that. Um, in the coming weeks, we'll, we'll focus on Advent, but, but today I want us to just hear this word. And so let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, as we have gotten to hear over the last 15 or 20 minutes, this incredible passage, often called the roll call of the heroes of faith, um, in which all of history from the beginning up until Jesus is, is kind of summarized as being um, primarily, if not about, at least focused on that what God is most looking for is men and women who live by faith, who walk by faith. And all the different aspects of what faith looks like, the things that it results in, the fruit that it bears, its ambiguity and its mystery. But above all else, it's its essence. I pray that you would give us, over the next few minutes, a real insight in our minds, in our hearts, of what the essence of faith is. I pray that we would have a better sense of what it is that we are called to do when we are called to exercise faith, that we have a better sense of of what the counterfeits look like, uh, of what it doesn't mean. And But we pray above all else, Holy Spirit, that you would create and empower and sustain and deepen faith, energize it, empower it in each of our lives. And I do pray whatever else 2024 holds for each of us individually, for our families and friends, for for us as a church, as the body of Christ, the neighborhood church, would you help us to walk by faith in this coming year? I pray that that, if anything else is true of us, that that would be true of us. That this be a year of growing into that, of going deeper into that, of going further in and further up into faith. And so Holy Spirit, would you just open our eyes and, and unclog our ears over the next few minutes? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, We are, if you didn't know, we are a Protestant church, which basically means in Western Christianity that we're not Catholic. And if you know anything about the Protestant Reformation, you know that faith alone, we are saved by faith alone, that the one response, the gospel, the message about Jesus' life and death and resurrection requires of us and calls forth from us is faith. In the New Testament, it's not just that faith is the beginning of the Christian life. It's not just that this is the way we become right with God. It's also that this is the single way we grow in, 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 um, in our relationship with God and being renovated back into the image of God. Um, and yet, I remember this as having not grown up in the church and going off to college 25 plus years ago and becoming a Christian. And I just remember for a number of years early on in my Christian life being regularly frustrated at feeling like this is such a fuzzy concept. This is so vague. People just mean a lot of different things by it, and they don't seem to mean specific things by it. And then as I got older, realizing that there's also a lot of errors that go by the name of faith. Let me just mention a couple, and and I don't want to be polemical and antagonistic right away, but I do want to make the claim, because I think it's important for us to hear this, that whether it's in the Western church, the American church, or whether it's in our wider culture, which does often still use the language of faith, Um, There are a lot of dilettantes when it comes to faith. There's a lot of posers. There's a lot of people that use the language of faith and it's nothing of the sort actually going on in their lives. And so it could be that that faith is often understood to be kind of a form of elitism, that these elite few in some mystical way have access to God's will and the rest of us don't. And it's used almost as, as kind of a power game to kind of exalt yourself and to give yourself kind of insider access. Whatever else faith is in Hebrews 11, it's something that all the people of God have. It's something that they have always had. It is open to all of us. One of the things that that is easy to miss, but if you back up and you look at Hebrews 11 overall, is that one of the main points that's being made is that faith is available to everyone. There are men here and there are women here. There are Jewish people here and there are Gentiles here. There are powerful people here, and there are people on the margins here. There are people who gain great recognition and people who are forgotten immediately or never even known. There are rich people here and poor people here. There are people who primarily seem to have suffered and their lives look like tragedies to us, and people who seem to prosper and be blessed. Faith is available to everyone, according to Hebrews 11. And so whenever faith is used in a kind of elitist way, you should immediately have a suspicion that is being misused. Faith is not elitist. It is open to all of the people of God. One that I think is particularly dangerous and tempting for us in our culture is faith is also, I'm just going to mention a couple of errors, a couple of vague confusions that are often there. Faith is often used, I think, in our culture. I certainly hear it often from, from other Christians, from people in our culture, in a way that kind of treats it like it's a bargain between God and you. A a way in which you're almost able to kind of lean into being a control freak, that because I have faith, therefore I am guaranteed that God's going to do this in the future. I'm guaranteed that this is not going to happen. It becomes a kind of genie in the lamp kind of thing where where you're kind of in the driver's seat in, in history and faith allows you to exert a kind of confidence about the future in a worldly way that I think is deeply untrue and misleading. And of course, 
in our culture, faith is often connected to the American dream, to health and wealth, prosperity gospel, that if you believe all of this stuff that you already wanted, even before you became a Christian, Jesus will be a means to an end to it. It will mean this, you'll get this, you'll get this, you'll get this, and these things won't happen. And I don't think faith really has anything to do with that. Um, the question it raises is, what exactly does faith look like? If, if right now you are walking by faith, what are you doing? What are you not doing? If in this coming year you would lean into this more, what would that look like in your life? And over the next couple of minutes, I, there's so many things in Hebrews 11 we could focus on. I want to focus on three. The first one will be by far the most important, the essence of faith, the heart of faith, the definition of faith. And this is just verse one in chapter 11. Do you remember when you had to write a, a, a paper in like 11th grade high school class and you had to write a thesis statement as the first sentence of the paper and it was supposed to summarize everything else? Hebrews 11.1 is basically that. When it says this very famously, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and it is the conviction of things not seen, the rest of the chapter is commentary on that statement. Everything else in the rest of the chapter is fleshing out, but that statement is also not super clear. What does that mean? What does that not mean? And so we're going to look, especially over the next few minutes, at that, but then we're going to look at the results of faith, the fruit of faith. When people walk by faith, what happens in their lives? What, what comes to be if they live by faith rather than by unbelief? What does that look like? And then I'm going to end with, in a way that might be disappointing to you, but I think ultimately it will be very important for us to do this, that as I encourage us to go into 2024, walking by faith, keeping that central, is I want to end by talking about the ambiguity of faith the mystery of faith. What even if you're living by faith, you cannot know certain things about what is coming in 2024. There's an ambiguity to faith and a mystery to faith in this chapter. And so we'll look at those three things. This first one, especially we will focus on. Um, one of the things that when I first started looking at this passage, Hebrews 11, which is so memorable, it's so rich, it's kind of like the best VeggieTales episode ever. It just has all these Bible characters and Bible stories. I remember thinking early on, how does the writer know this about all of these people? Because at that point in my life, I, I read the Old Testament enough to know that if you look up every one of these people in the Old Testament, barely a single one of them does the word faith get connected to their story in the Old Testament. Abel's sacrifice was received by God, but Cain's was not because Abel offered it by faith. I don't read that in Genesis 4. Moses did this, Abraham did that, Sarah did this, these people did this, these people did this. And, and the writer constantly says, he says 18 times, it's the kind of leitmotif of the whole chapter, 18 times in Hebrews 11, he says, by faith, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Moses, by faith, Abel, by faith, Noah, by faith, this person, by faith, this person. And you go read the Old Testament and it almost never says that, that they were actually doing these things by faith. So how does the writer know this? And so let me point this out to begin with. Jump down to, probably along with verse one, the other really famous verse in this chapter, verse six. Verse six tells us this, it's kind of a decoder key, both for Hebrews 11, but also for how the writer reads the Old Testament as a Christian. The writer says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, be pleasing to him, must do two things. Must one, believe that he exists, and two, must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Just want you to notice right now that that is restating the two categories of verse one. Faith is the conviction of things that cannot be seen. 
You must believe that God exists even though you cannot see that. And faith is the assurance of what is hoped for. Faith seeks a reward that it believes is coming in the future but is not here yet. And without this disposition of seeing what is unseen and of being persuaded of what is still to come, it is impossible to please God. At the very end of chapter 10, when Mary Sue read this, it said, if you look at the end of chapter 10, verse 11, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. But if he or she shrinks back, my soul, God says, has no pleasure in this person. The writer of Hebrews believes this. At the center of God's relationship to human beings is that God takes pleasure in people who walk by faith and that he is not pleased with those who do not trust him. Therefore, retrospectively, the writer reads all of these Old Testament stories and notices, now, We don't read anything in Genesis 4 about Abel having faith and Cain not having faith. But it is very clear in that narrative that God is pleased with Abel and that he is not pleased with Cain. And therefore, the writer deduced there must have been faith there in Abel's life. Because God is not pleased with anyone who doesn't walk by faith, and he is pleased with those who walk by faith. Therefore, if in the narrative of the Old Testament someone is described as having pleased God, the writer knows This person walked by faith, even if the story never mentions that. And if someone is not pleasing to God, even if the story doesn't mention that, this is a person who did not walk by faith. And so at the center of this narrative is this, that the one thing God is looking for above all else is faith. So let's go back to verse one, and then we're gonna see how this runs throughout the chapter. I suspect that this will be the most important thing in in the next couple of minutes to really think about, to reflect on. I encourage you to come back to it in the days and weeks to come. In verse one, it says, now faith is the uh, assurance in the ESV that we read and that I'm reading here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. Now, there is a really big debate over two of the words in this, unfortunately, because the whole chapter hinges on it. The ESV translates the first phrase as faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Some of you will maybe remember translations that translate it as faith is the substance of things hoped for which sounds very different in assurance. And sometimes, instead of faith being the conviction of things not seen, which, like assurance, is is a subjective word, that faith is your subjective assurance that what is hoped for is coming, that faith is your subjective conviction that what is objectively unseen is there, you could make a good argument, and I actually think this is a better reading, that both of the words are actually more objective than subjective. Faith is actually the substance of what we hope for, and it is the evidence of what we do not see. And what I want us to notice over just the next maybe 90 seconds or so, so I want you to notice that virtually every person's story in Hebrews 11, these are the two dynamics that the writer emphasizes. That they saw what cannot be seen by human eyes, and that they were pursuing something that was still to come in the future, but was not available in the present. I already mentioned verse six, but let's go to verse three. Look at what it says about the creation story in Genesis one. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Faith is always a response, not an initiation. It's a response to a word that God speaks. And in creation, God speaks and he says, let there be light. And faith understands that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Creation, not just redemption, creation is an object of faith. 
I cannot prove to you by reason or empirically that the world is creation and not an accident. But by faith, we see something that cannot be seen. Faith understands that the things that have been made were made out of things that cannot be seen. Verse 6, I already mentioned, but here are the two things. Faith has to believe that God exists. It has to see something that can't be seen, and it has to seek a reward from him that he has promised. It needs to have a substance. It needs to have an assurance of things that are hoped for. Jump down to verse 7. Let's look at a couple of these other stories and these illustrations. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events that were as yet unseen. Something is coming that has not arrived yet, and it cannot be seen, but Noah sees it, not because he has a sixth sense, not because he's smarter than other people, but because the word of God makes it known to him, and he trusts that word. And therefore, Noah is in a position to see something that cannot yet be seen, and to know something is coming that has not yet come. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. If you remember this story, Noah looks like an idiot to all his neighbors as he's building this ark. Why? Because he sees something that they can't see, and he knows that something is coming that they don't think is coming. And that is central to faith. Verse 8 with Abraham. Abraham obeyed by faith when he was called to go out to a place that he was in the future to receive as an inheritance, but he didn't have it yet. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Notice this. He can't see the real estate, and he doesn't even have the deed and the title to it yet. Something unseen, something still to come, and yet he acts on it in the present by faith. Jump down with Abraham to verse 13. This one is especially central. These all, from Abel to Abraham, these all died in faith. They did not receive the things that were promised. But notice they did two things. But they saw them, and they greeted them from afar. They saw what couldn't be seen, and they greeted them even though they had not yet come into history. That they were focused on the future, something that had not yet arrived, and they saw something that other people's eyes could not see. This is what people of faith do. And having acknowledged that, we'll see this in just a minute, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In just a second, I'll back up and I'll do this. Abraham and Moses are the two main characters in Hebrews 11. It's not the only way you can tell the Old Testament story. You could make David a much bigger character. You could make somebody, Joseph is a big character in the way Stephen tells the Old Testament story in Acts 7. But for this writer, Abraham and Moses are the two great examples of faith in the Old Testament. And going down to Moses, sorry, this is still Abraham. Going down to Abraham and Sarah in verse 19 And this is a big story and a big theme in Advent. So if you come back next Sunday, Abraham and Sarah conceiving a child when they are way too old to conceive, which then reappears in the New Testament with Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, that this becomes a big theme of faith. And in verse 19, we're told, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Something that had not yet happened and something that could not be seen. Abraham is zeroed in on that. He is persuaded of it. He is aware of it. He is compelled by it. Something about seeing what is unseen and expecting that what has not yet happened will happen because God has promised it. This is the two-beat rhythm behind faith over and over and over again. And then finally, Moses, verse 25. Moses, let's actually back up to verse 24. 
By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why did he do that? He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin, which are both available already and absolutely seeable. You can see sinful pleasure and it's already available. You don't have to wait for it and you don't have to trust it. It is there for you to taste and smell and enjoy and it is available in the present. And Moses said no to it. Why? Because he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why would Moses do that? Because he was looking to the reward. He was assured of things that were hoped for. And then not only that, but by faith he left Egypt and he wasn't afraid of the anger of the king of the greatest empire of the ancient world. Why was he not afraid? Because Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses saw something that other people did not see and he was looking to a reward that had not actually arrived yet. And the writer says, this is what faith looks like. Faith is these two things over and over and over again. If you want to, on your own time, later on, back up, I want you to notice, or, or, or you can go see for yourself later, that Moses and Abraham get way more screen time, they get way more air time in this chapter than everybody else combined. And both Abraham and Moses have seven stories connected to them of faith in this chapter. Three stories for Abraham, three stories for Moses are kind of their origin story. There's birth in the midst of death and yet life comes. Moses looks like he's going to get murdered right away. Isaac looks like he's never even going to be born and yet life miraculously comes where it doesn't seem possible. Then they leave their homeland, both Abraham and Moses, and they become despised strangers in somebody else's homeland. That's there. And then the last three stories for both Abraham and Moses are actually other people stories of faith, but the faith that came in their wake after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph also lived by faith, just like Abraham did. After Moses, the people crossed the Red Sea. The walls of Jericho fell down after Moses died. Rahab received the spies. All of these are connected to Abraham and Moses. And the fourth story for both Abraham and Moses, there's three stories about them. There's three stories of what happened right after them because of their faith. The fourth story for both Abraham and Moses is the pinnacle of their faith. And for Abraham, it's the binding of Isaac. He goes up on Mount Moriah and God has already promised you're going to have an heir. And Abraham already knows I'm already too old. Sarah's already too old. And Isaac has miraculously come along. And God says, take Isaac and kill him on this mountain. And Abraham has no idea how to connect the dots. He cannot see what God is doing behind the scenes. And he has no idea how God's future is going to come if he does this. But he offers up his son because he sees something that can't be seen and he knows that God will do something in the future. And Moses, the great climactic act of faith for Moses, at least according to the writer of Hebrews, is on the eve of the Exodus, the night before they leave Egypt. They are still enslaved like they have been for 400 years to the great military empire of the ancient world and nothing has changed yet. And yet they got sandals on their feet and they got clothes on their back. And they have made unleavened bread, which is bitter, because they are ready to leave. And on the night before the exodus happens, nothing has happened yet. And yet, they sit down and they celebrate the first Passover in human history. And they do that by faith. Why? Because Moses saw something that Pharaoh couldn't see, and he knew something was coming tomorrow that nobody else in Fox News or the New York Times thought was coming tomorrow. 
That for Moses and Abraham, these become the great moments of faith, and it's seeing what can't be seen, and it is expecting what is not yet arrived, that is this two-beat heart of faith. In C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, which I still remember reading to Ernest and Taekwon when they were younger, and I still come back to it from time to time, the, the final story in The Chronicles of Narnia is the last battle. And if you've never read it, I encourage you, you could even, it's a great one to read over Christmas, over Advent. And in the last couple of chapters of The Last Battle, there is this refrain that just repeats over and over and over again, where C.S. Lewis has different characters saying to the main kind of um, boys and girls in the story, farther up and farther in, farther up and farther in, keep coming. Now, what you notice that things that are unseen are things that are already true things that are already present. Right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and he rules the universe. That is already true right now, but that is unseen. I cannot demonstrate that to you. Jesus has already made atonement for our sins. His blood has already cleansed us of all unrighteousness, but I cannot prove that to you. I cannot prove that God is pleased with you and that you're right with him by that, but I do believe that that is true. These things are already true, but they are, so to speak, behind the scenes in heaven, and they have not yet been revealed publicly to the world of sight, to the world empirically. And so faith, on the one hand, has a kind of upward focus. It is seeing what is already going on behind the scenes. It knows that Jesus rules. It knows that the Holy Spirit has been poured out. It knows that God is providentially working all things for the good of those who love him. It knows that our daily bread will be given. It knows that God is for us and not against us. And I cannot prove a single thing of those claims to you. I've never seen any of those claims with my eyes. I've never heard any of them with my ears. I have never tasted them or smelled them. It is something that I see by faith, not because faith is making it up, because faith is responding to and trusting the word of God. But faith also has a forward direction. If you think it has an arrow up, it also has an arrow forward. The faith is also focused on something that's still to come in history that has not yet arrived. And so focus, faith is focused on something up and something in. It's focused on something already true but behind the scenes. And it's focused on something that hasn't arrived yet, that is still to come. And so when C.S. Lewis says over and over again at the end of this book, further up and further in, this is what faith is called to. In 2024, Neighborhood Church, further up, further in. See the things that are unseen, that are already behind the scenes. See and hope for the things that are still to come and lean more into that, further up and further in. Now, let me say this real quick before we, we kind of wrap things up. Here's something that Hebrews 11 does not foresee and it doesn't directly talk about, although I also think it's probably not as unique as it sometimes feels as a burden to us, but we cannot pretend that we don't live on the other side of the Enlightenment. We can't pretend that we're not modern people who find faith really difficult, who even find it suspicious. I was just, Ernest and I walked down the street to get coffee and, and a sandwich before the service, and on 9th Avenue over there, they have Christmas trees set up for you to buy now. And they have all these quotes from different Christmas movies like Elf, and I don't know which movie this is from, but there's a quote on the sign, I thought, ooh, this is kind of painful before a sermon on Hebrews 11. There's a sign on, there's a quote on, right over there on 9th Avenue and 22nd Street that says, just because you can't see something doesn't mean that it exists, Santa Claus. I'm like, that's, that's at the heart of what makes us nervous as modern people. This feels like a gigantic setup for wishful thinking. This feels like a gigantic setup for just believing what you want to believe. 
And so I, I want to name something out loud that every single one of us feels. Some of us more often and more deeply. Others of us have just every once in a while and not as central. But all of us feel disturbed by it. And I want to name it. John Locke, the great Enlightenment philosopher, says in one place, Faith is a persuasion, one, of our own minds, self-generated, and two, that falls short of knowledge. Faith is what you do when knowledge comes up short. That is central to the understanding of faith in Western culture today. Immanuel Kant says this in the preface to Critique of Pure Reason. I have therefore found it necessary to deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. Or as Mark Twain said a little more humorously, faith is when you believe things that you know aren't true. Faith is when you believe things that you know aren't true. It is hard for us to hear Hebrews 11 without these anxieties, without these worries, without these concerns. And so let me say for now, um, there are many, many other things I could say, but I would say Hebrews 11, whether you think Christianity is true, whether you think God exists or not, whether you think faith is heroic, whether you think it's foolish or anything in between, that Hebrews 11 presents faith not as something less than knowledge. That's absolutely not how it presents it. I would also say that if you say faith is something other than knowledge, there is something true about that. Faith is, is different than knowledge for sure. But the main thing Hebrews 11, and I would say ultimately all the scriptures say, is that faith is finally something more than knowledge. It is not less than knowledge. It's not even primarily something other than knowledge, but it's kind of like when a blind person comes to see. Something more is now going on. It's like when a deaf person can all of a sudden hear a Mozart symphony for the first time, something more is going on. Not less, not other, but something normal has been restored. It's like when a dead person gets up out of their grave. It's like when a lame person can not only walk but begin dancing. This is what faith is like. Henry Skugel says this, faith has the same place in the Christian life which sense, your five senses, has in the natural life. Indeed, faith is nothing else but a kind of sense of feeling persuasion of spiritual things. I would say this, I have a a pretty good eye, but I have a really bad ear. Because of that, and I'm using this metaphorically in one sense, because of that, I often open up the Bible. It's one of the reasons I'm a pastor, and I'm a halfway decent teacher, I hope. I often open up the Bible, and I see things that other people don't see. When I listen to music, I don't hear half of what Adam Schwing hears. This is what faith is like. It's being able to see things that other people are still blind to. Being able to hear things that other people are still deaf to. It's being aware of things. And I would also say this. This is where we need to definitely move away from knowledge as the only category. Faith is not just the awareness, not just the conviction, not just the recognition that things unseen actually are there. The things still to come, they actually are coming. It it was often this. Here's the way I would put it. Faith smells God's future already. It hears it already. It can taste it already. Every single man and woman in this chapter, they were not just intellectually convinced this is true, but it exerted a motivating influence on them. They saw the city that is to come, and they thought this is better than Egypt. They saw the reward to come, and they thought this is better than the riches of human beings. They saw the praise to come from the God, and they said this is better than the praise of sinful human beings. That faith is a value judgment. Faith actually prefers what is coming and it prefers what is unseen to the things that are um, currently seen. In Hamlet, Shakespeare very famously has these two characters, Horatio and Hamlet, say this, that when they see the ghost of Hamlet's father in Act 1, Horatio says, Oh, day and night, 
but this is a wondrously strange thing. And Hamlet famously responds, and therefore as a stranger give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And faith knows that. Faith knows that things are going on behind the scenes right now that none of us is aware of. Faith knows that things are coming that will completely change our evaluation and how we interpret right now. You are all old enough to look back on your 13-year-old self, your 8-year-old self, maybe even your last week depressed self, and know that I thought I was interpreting the entire thing, but man, did I not know things that were coming that have completely changed my evaluation of what was going on there. Faith knows that this is coming. And faith knows that things are going on behind the scene that God is up to. And and so let me name this as we come to a close here in a minute. Here's a a, a great passage from John Webster, wonderful Scottish theologian who died a few years ago. And he's naming two extremes and, and also naming that, man, wouldn't we love to not have to live by faith? Wouldn't we love to just be able to see it? Wouldn't we love for it to just be here already and not have to wait for it? That's a great theme of Advent, by the way, waiting for what is still to come. John Webster says this, the object of faith is frustratingly absent to God's people. Faith's object is something for which we hope, but it is not something that is here yet. Faith's object is invisible. What faith is about, what faith turns towards, isn't available to us in any straightforward way. It's not present to us unambiguously like tables and chairs and people and all the other things that make up the world. Faith's object is simply not something which we can handle. It is not a bit of the secure, manageable world. It's on the other side of the world. It is beyond our current horizon, beyond our sight and beyond our touch and in one sense, even beyond our knowledge. In faith, we do business with God. Yet even in doing business with God, we never get to a point where we see and know God directly, like we see and know other things. There is no immediate vision. There is no point, not even in faith itself, at which the barrier between us and God is dismantled and we are face-to-face with God. What there is now, all there is now, is hope, in faith, not sight. And so let me say this as, as a warning, as a caution, but also as a realism. Faith does not overcome the hiddenness of God. One day there will be no faith. One day there will be no hope because we will see face to face. But God's face and God's future are not available to us right now the way other things are available to us. And we walk by faith both with respect to God's face and with respect to God's future. And that cannot be overcome. Webster then goes on to say, because of this, faith is always contested. It is contested by those who do not share our faith. And we ourselves often contest it in our hearts. We often feel dismayed by the fact that what we have believed is so frustratingly intangible, invisible, apparently so far out of our reach. So often it seems as if faith is hanging in midair, insecure, ungrounded, utterly perilous and exposed. Now, because faith seems suspended in nothingness, we often try to replace it with something else because this is uncomfortable living by faith. This is uncomfortable to have to trust what you can't see and to wait for what has not arrived yet. We look for tangible reinsurances. Rather than hope, we want it with something else. Sorry, rather than hope, we want possession. Rather than things glimpsed in the half light of faith, we want something we can see clearly and unambiguously right here, right now. And so we build up a great array of tangible substitutes for the God whom we encounter in faith.
Sometimes we place a great deal of weight on arguments and ideas. I'm a nerd. I tend to do that. I'm going to think my way to God rather than trust him. Other people look for experiences of God to play that role. I'm going to experience God so intensely and so passionately that I don't need to trust anymore because this experience is self-evident. And Webster just says, ideas and arguments, experiences, they're not faith. They're helpful, but they're secondary and they are not faith. There is no experience that will remove the necessity for faith. There is no idea and argument that will remove the necessity for faith in trusting in God. And he goes on, at other times, we look to these experiences. Every so often, we're tempted to think that this experience will give us a sort of direct route to God. And then he goes on and he concludes with this. Another temptation is to go to the other extreme, and this is, if I just stopped here, something that that you would probably feel and, and be worried about. Another temptation is to go to the other extreme. That is, the temptation is to say that because the object of faith is not tangible and it's not visible, then faith is in fact just pure risk, a leap into nothingness, an utterly empty space. But Hebrews does not allow us to think in these terms either. Faith, it tells us, is not sheer abandonment of ourselves to nothing. It is conviction and it is hope. Faith isn't simple blindness. It's a real seeing of things that cannot yet be seen. But of that which we have a conviction, that in which we hope and which we see, it does have a special character. And the object of faith is real to us in a special way. Faith is not simple seeing, but neither is it sheer blindness. Faith is that kind of seeing which corresponds to the way in which God has chosen to be visible right now. It is that kind of knowing which corresponds to the way in which God has chosen to make himself known to us. Faith is the way in which we meet and respond to the God who sets himself before us and speaks to us and reveals himself. Then he says, what's the practical consequence of all of this? Webster asks, Faith is the inescapable way in which we live our lives now in relationship to God. Not in the future, but now there is no Christianity without this. There is no connection to God without this. And he says we cannot get beyond it. There are, again, no other terms on which we can have God. Faced with this fact, we can react one of two ways. We can rail against it or we can accept it as part of our falling condition. We can no more get beyond faith than we can get beyond time and space and our bodies. And so I want to call you to faith, to seeing what cannot be seen, to hoping in what has not arrived yet. This is central to how the people of God live. Now, because I'm I'm out of time, I'm going to skip a couple of things that I was going to do here. But as you read Hebrews 11, I just want you to notice in the future as you read it, all the things that happen in the lives of people that have faith. God is pleased with them, and he commends them as belonging to them. God is not ashamed to be called the God of these people. That These people obey God, and they live transformed lives, lives very different than the selfishness and the idolatry of the normal around them. These people identify with the people of God publicly. It's not just that they are not ashamed to call God their God, and God is not ashamed to call them his people, but people of faith are not ashamed to be identified with the people of God. There are a lot of books out there with titles like, they like Jesus, but not the church, or how to be a Christian without going to church. And Hebrews 11 knows of no faith 
that does not unambiguously identify with God's people publicly as the family of God, but because of that, faith also puts people out of step with the world, and as soon as people start walking by faith, they become exiles and strangers. They become outsiders and weirdos, not because they want that, not because they're forcing that, but because antagonism and opposition to the status quo begins to arise. And so people of faith both identify with God and his people, but they also became, become strangers and pilgrims. Faith endures to the end. Nobody here gives up before they get to the finish line. The race that is set before us Faith is what gets us to the end. And in case this feels too challenging or feels intimidating or feels discouraging, let me also say this. Faith is accompanied by massive failure in the life of everyone who walks by faith. Every single person in this chapter is a massive screw-up. One of the reasons I do not like when Hebrews 11 is called the roll call of the heroes of faith is not a single person here is a hero. It is a bunch of screw-ups and losers and failures. But faith always gets back up and it keeps going. It always pays attention to God's promises again. It always is convinced that what God has said and what God has done is more real than what we are smelling with our noses. It is more real than what we are seeing in this room right now. It is the ultimate thing to bank our lives on. And so as we end, I want to draw your attention to, I said I was going to talk about the ambiguity and the mystery of faith. This might come across as, man, this is, not a, this is a bummer. This is not what I wanted faith to look like. But as you get older, and some of you are already here, as you get older, I suspect that this paragraph, is the paragraph that Abuka read, look at verse 32, I suspect that for a few of you, at least, this paragraph could save your faith in the years to come. And I want you to really notice what's going on here. Faith does a lot of things, according to Hebrews 11, unambiguously. Faith makes us pleasing to God, and God commends us, justifies us. We are righteous and right before God because of faith. It causes us to begin obeying God, not perfectly, but but truly. It causes us to have joy and for God's power and life to be unleashed in our lives. Faith does a lot of things in anybody's life who walks by faith. But here is something that I cannot promise you that faith does. I want you to read... And here as I read, something that's very easy to miss. In verse 32, kind of like the moment I'm at in the sermon right now, where the writer says, I've got to speed this up. Time is running out. Time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of Samson and of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then he mentions two categories of people. And they sum up the categories of people throughout the chapter. They sum up the categories of people throughout all of history. And he says this, one group of people through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Their marriage announcements were in the New York Times. They went to Ivy League schools and they married and they had three and a half kids and they had a white picket fence around the suburbs. Things went really well for these people through faith. Through faith, all of these blessings came. And then he goes on, and then he says, but some, verse 35, not because they didn't have faith, but the assumption is some through faith were tortured and they refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others through faith suffered mocking. Others through faith were flogged. Others through faith were given chains and imprisonment. Others through faith were stoned, sawn in two, killed with a sword. Others through faith went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Only one thing can we know about all these people. The world was not worthy of any of them. But man, did their stories turn out differently. 
Some by faith, everything seemed to go well, and some by faith, everything fell apart for them. And so I do want to call you to walk by faith in 2024, but I also want to be very realistic. If you do, I have no idea what that will look like for you. And I have no idea what it will look like for me. If you want to start looking at people and say, because of the circumstances of this person's life, therefore faith, and because of the circumstances of this person's life, therefore not faith, I would say, go find a different religion other than Christianity. Job and Jesus. And if you're part of Neighborhood Church, you know we do this. If you ever get to the end of our bulletin and you see the nations we pray for of the suffering in church, say, Lord, fill them with as much faith as we have so that they suffer less. I'm going to call you into my office for some church discipline. If you think the suffering church is suffering because of a lack of faith, I would say you do not yet know what faith is. Faith means lots of things. It is the greatest thing you can do with your life. I so highly commend it to you, but it can tell you nothing of what the shape of the years to come will look like. It cannot tell you whether the society around you will look at you as a comedy or a tragedy or what the breakdown between blessing and suffering will look like. But on the one hand, even the ones who suffered through faith, God commended them and there are promises that they are to receive. And even those for whom everything seemed to go right, they died not having received what was promised to them. There is a tragic element in all of our lives, even when we walk by faith, and there is something incredibly joyful and incredibly victorious when we walk by faith. I would just say this, do not run away from the mystery and the ambiguity of faith. Do not draw out ahead of time what you think life will look like if you live by faith or what you think it won't look like if you don't. You cannot look at the circumstances of anybody's life and conclude whether they have faith or not. What you can conclude is that if God is pleased with you, it is because you walk by faith. If you are walking in obedience to God's commands, it's because you walk by faith. If you are finding God's promises and God's truth more deeply satisfying and real, it's because the Holy Spirit has given us faith. And so as we end, I just want to encourage us. The one thing God looks for in our lives, what the world needs from us more than anything else, and what makes us, what makes the people of God, for the world not to be worthy of them, it is faith. If you read the way that the New York Times or Fox News or Wall Street Journal tells history, the things that seem to be important are very different than what's here in Hebrews 11. The most important thing in the coming year is going to be whether you walk by faith or not. Whether the things that are unseen are right there in your horizon and you're convinced of them and you're responding to them and acting as if they're true and that the things that are still to come, that by faith you can smell it. By faith you can already hear it. By faith, on Thursday at our place, a bunch of you came over for dinner and all day Thursday before we sat down for the meal, there were smells in our kitchen and all day long I was looking forward to that meal. That's what faith does with respect to God's promised future. And so let me end with this, and then I'll pray, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. A famous French Catholic novelist, Leon Blas, once said this, ultimately, the only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to be a saint. That is not to have faith. This is the dividing line between comedies and tragedies. This is the dividing line between lives to which God will say at the end, well done, good and faithful servant, and depart from me, I never knew you. This is the dividing line of whether we waste our lives or whether we live them in fulfillment of God's purposes. This is a neighborhood church in 2024, farther up and farther in. The things that are unseen, farther up. 
the things that are still to come that are hoped for, farther in. This is what faith looks like. Let's pray, and then let's come by faith to enjoy the Lord's table together.